0: I'm Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series, brought to you today by Yetter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Yetter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at Yetterco.com. That's Y E T T E R C O.com. No matter what you do in life, it can be easy to get lulled into doing the same thing over and over again. For farmers, that might mean getting into a rut on the crop rotation or animal inputs, or it could simply mean not finding a solution for a recurring problem. Our guest for this week's podcast is Brendan Blanc, an independent certified forage specialist who works with Byron Seeds. Based in Exonia, Wisconsin, Brendan helps farmers solve management problems by designing cropping systems that make better use of the land and human capital, while focusing on diversity, enhancing animal health, and improving the soil. Listen in as Brendan explains why he likes to use what he calls alternative forages they can help no tillers maximize growing degree days and provide flexibility in spreading manure, his thoughts on growing TMR, and much more.
1: So Brendan, yes. why don't you just go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be a certified forage specialist?
2: Sure. I grew up on a dairy farm. So that kind of got me involved. at my first involvement in, in agriculture. I was kind of always drawn towards the, the crop end of the farm. But also with the dairy, I mean, I enjoyed the cattle. So kind of the connection between the two. For college, I went to UW-Semons Stevens Point and studied soils there. But it wasn't agronomy. It was more of soils. And and that learned a lot of stuff there. After college, I worked for NRCS for eight years in a, a couple counties here. With that, I did a lot of conservation plans for farms. was doing a lot of conservation practices, terraces, grass waterways. Barnyard runoff, manure storage, a lot of different things like that. Still helping out at home on the farm. In the meantime, I had kind of gotten connected with Byron Seed and the, the forage end of what they do.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: after working for NRCS for a number of years, I met Ray Archuleta through that. And that, was, I mean, the no-till is something we've been doing on the farm already. The kind of introduction with Ray and the soil health thing really sparked my interest mm-hmm. a lot. And it was something we'd already been kind of doing some of on the farm, but really kind of expanded on that. A few years ago, I left NRCS and worked for a dairy nutrition consulting company for, for two years. Again, the, the soil health stuff, the forage, the forages was still probably more of a, was, was a passion of mine, and the dairy nutrition was an opportunity to Kind of focused on the forage end of that, and so I spent a couple of years there, learned a tremendous amount more about about forages, about balancing rations for cattle, how to feed cattle. It kind of built my knowledge base of again forages and how they work together, and then all the, all the biological systems that are within a cow, and a lot of the parallels with the soil that again kind of grew my interest, and the more I worked with it, the more I was like you know what i'm the land in the forages is probably more my passion than of cattle in the forages, so I, I stepped down from there. Basically, now I'm just, I'm running my own business as of working with with Byron's feed, doing seed sales. But I like to work with progressive farms that are looking at kind of getting beyond the stereotypical forage systems, crop systems that are customary across the region. Here, work a lot with dairies. Do do a lot with cover crops. Um, it's kind of interesting how Byron has been a big. They've really. In, in pushing a lot of the cropping diversities and alternative forages and kind of focusing on that, a lot of the soil health just kind of came along with that. And the cover crops fit nicely in with there. So I've got kind of a, so forages, cover crops are two different things, but there's a lot, a lot of overlap there. So
1: Right. You've mentioned that you focus a lot on alternative forages. Uh, I think you were sort of referring to that just now. Can you define that for us and explain why farmers should sort of think about using those?
2: The primary forages, if I mean, if we're talking dairies, we're talking corn silage and alfalfa, and it's pre- pretty basic. When I start talking about alternative forages, I mean, there's you can take a lot of different ways. There's grasses, there's clovers that can be mixed in with the alfalfa. Um, so there, you can basically use the existing crop that you're doing. You don't change your rotation at all, but you're adding some diversity to that to blend in what a lot of people would consider not a mainstream crop. The other options are I mean, sorghum fans um, are a really good option for putting in in rotations um, cereal grains so your winter rye winter triticale um tremendous tremendous crops that are becoming much more popular but still definitely outside the mainstream. i kind of take everything back to problem solving and whether what, uh, you, you got to feed cows if everything you're you're doing you're trying to accomplish something and there's there's different ways to do that and just kind of keeping those options open. Different forages to give you more flexibility. If we have a bad winter kill situation with alfalfa, we've got options to remedy that quickly within the same growing season. If we've got a late like the last few years, we've had some problems with prevent plant stuff around here where people haven't been able to get corn planted on time. um, We've had some really good options to solve those problems. When everything goes perfectly The alternative forages tend to get overlooked and people, farmers like to do what's comfortable and what they know. There have been a lot of challenges over the last several cropping seasons with, yeah, getting things planted, winter kill alfalfa, a lot of challenges that have pushed people outside their normal comfort zones into some of these alternative forages. And a lot of farmers are sticking with them. They didn't necessarily plant them because they wanted to. They planted them because they had to. And we had a solution to the problem that they had of a crop failure or a weather problem. Um, but now a lot of them, are, a lot of them are, they're liking what they're seeing and they're sticking with them. So it, it's kind of neat to uh-huh. be able to solve somebody's problem and with something that they see as a way to maybe prevent that problem from arriving again by having a little bit more diversity in their cropping system.
1: Okay, interesting. You use the winter kill of alfalfa as an example. Can you just talk about like one of the solutions that you had for that problem? Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Like what it, it depends on the severity. But if you've got an alfalfa field where you're like, you know, I really need to, I want, I want one more year out of the stand. The the alfalfa out there is thin or it's patchy. It's kind of dead in part of the field, but it's alive in the rest of the field, and I don't want to tear the whole field out. Um, Italian ryegrass is a really good solution there and even some of some of the different clovers um you can go in there early spring you just no till it in it's going to grow up along with that alfalfa it's a really really aggressive crop um so it grows really fast it's really high quality which is good and yeah it's it's a good way to get to get another year out of a stand and and then when you want to talk about I mean, soil benefits, I mean, it, the, the cool season grasses are just a tremendous, tremendous soil builder. The roots they put in the soil are just are just phenomenal. And so, again, they're, we're solving a problem that he has with feed, but we're getting more benefits than that alone. So, yeah, that that's one good solution. Another one, let's, I mean, if you've got a field that sometimes people will want to take, will take first cutting of alfalfa off. And it's like, you know, if the field wasn't wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be. And what else can I put in behind there? Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's corn salad. Sometimes it's, it's sorghum sedan.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and even within that sorghum sedan, we've been doing some interesting things the last few years where we've been blending sorghum sedan with Italian ryegrass and some clovers and some different legumes and vetch and such. A lot of these things were in the cover crop realm. We talk about the multi-species cover crops, in, uh, w- which have been proven time and time and time and time again to outperform any monoculture cover crop we can achieve a lot of those same benefits in the forage system Mm
3: -hmm. with
2: multi-species. So like if you've got an alfalfa field that's got, I mean, my ideal alfalfa field is going to have three or four different varieties of alfalfa. a little bit of clover and probably three varieties of grass in there. Mm -hmm. So now we've got a lot, we've got multi-species. It's essentially like a multi-species cover crop that's there for four years because we've got the benefits of diversity there. Mm -hmm. Now, Kind of back to where I was talking about the alfalfa winter kill. If you've got a field that already has grass in there, some of these perennial grasses, your chances of a severe winter kill on that alfalfa are are less, as you've got some diversity out there. The chances of the grass winter killing are slim. But if you do have an alfalfa winter kill, you're probably gonna you've got more grass that's already there. So well now you make some adjustments and you fertilize that field differently instead of fertilizing it for alfalfa, which is now a smaller part of that crop, you're gonna put a little bit more nitrogen out there and try and push the grass growth to get your to get your tonnage out of it for that year.
1: So when you're talking about the performance of these, are you talking about performance in terms of standability or are you talking about soil health benefits or nutritional benefits or all of the above? <laughs>
2: Probably, I mean very much very often it comes to all of the above because the uh, anytime you're getting beyond just corn and alfalfa you're going to have soil health benefits um, because you're you're adding diversity to the plants that you're growing in that soil performance wise a lot of these what we would call alternative forages are extremely high quality they get overshadowed by the corn and alfalfa and I mean, soybeans and the other commodity crops that we have so the fiber digestibility is is very good on a lot of these standability it all depends on kind of what crop you're after i mean some some with alfalfa having the grass mixed in there can be can definitely it definitely helps with standability because um, that can be a problem with alfalfa is but wants to lodge and, and lay over but then the other thing i mean is kind of talking on the cool season having the right in alfalfa the right grasses because you you have the right grass in there it's a it's a problem solver. You have the wrong grass in there. Uh, soil health standpoint, it'll still serve its purpose. From the standability standpoint, it'll still serve its purpose. But from a quality standpoint, it's a problem creator.
1: <laughs> oh, is that right?
2: Because uh, it's, you, if you don't have one that's going to have the right digestibility or harvestability, or I mean, some a lot of grasses aren't going to mature mm-hmm. in a timely fashion to match the alfalfa. You got to be very intentional with that. And the, the grass feed that we work with all comes out of Europe. They grow grass the way we grow alfalfa. So while we've been focusing on our alfalfa genetics, which we've done a phenomenal job of improving, over there they've been focusing on the grass genetics and improving that. And we bring that over here and put the two together, and it works really, really well. We used to, everybody used to have, I mean, you talk to anybody, their, their dad or their grandpa used to plant orchard grass, timothy, whatever, brome in with the alfalfa. Well, as our alfalfa got better, we quit doing that. And there was good reason for that because the alfalfa surpassed the grass. Now the grass was a detriment um, because of the quality problems. Um, but now we bring these improved grasses over from Europe and we eliminated that problem.
1: So can you just give a couple of examples of how the grasses have been improved?
2: Y- yeah, l- later to mature. So, I mean, typically your first cutting, I mean, h- historically, I mean, most of the grasses available here are you know, old genetics. And by the time you're first cutting alfalfa is ready to cut, your grass is headed out and it's, it's, your quality is gone. It's all fibrous, It's not much digestible material. And okay. uh, and then also very often after that, you get a great big first crop that's poor quality. And now the grass doesn't grow well during the drier part of the summer. Mm-hmm. So now mm-hmm. you, you, you got a plant that lowered the quality of your first cutting and now it's not there for the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these new genetics are... They, they mature much later, the fiber digestibility is much better, and they're much more consistent cutting for cutting throughout the season. So,
1: okay. Or you said something that I found intriguing. It sounded like you were saying that having grasses in with the alfalfa can actually help prevent uh, winter kill of that alfalfa.
2: There has been some conjecture that 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 will happen and i think part of it is it depends a little bit on the reasons for the alfalfa winter Um, a lot of alfalfa can be winter killed from your frost heaving action in the spring when your ground is freezing and thawing and if you've got a good grass out there you're that grass is going to help i moderate those temperature swings between day and night when you get that freezing and thawing period i see and just because you got a little bit more of a sod out there is going to help keep that more stable if you do have the frost heaving issue that takes out the alfalfa, well, now you've got the grass that's there basically ready to take up the space that that alfalfa just left it. So a c- couple different things there. I, I do believe it can help prevent some frost heaving, um, but it can also help remedy that very quickly if you do have some, okay. some of those issues.
1: Okay. So, Interesting. All right. And so you've been sort of talking about how cover crops and forages are often the same or similar plants, but they're used they're used for different things. Some growers, of course, want something that can be grazed, but can also function as that cover crop, you know, to control erosion, increase organic matter, reduce nutrient leaching, that sort of thing. Um, do you have examples of cover species that have that dual functionality? And are there any sort of general management tactics that growers can? follow to make sure that they get the best performance possible?
2: Yeah. I, I think one thing to look at is pr- pretty much every cover crop that we use is already a commodity crop of some kind somewhere. Right. So there's a purpose for that that we're very aware of. I mean, it, it could be a grain crop, it could be a forage crop, it could be a vegetable crop, um, an oilseed crop, a lot of different things that these crops are already used for. From the grazing and forage end of things, we just kind of got to know what is our, what is our objective? When are we going to be grazing those? Is this going to be a warm season thing in the middle of summer? Is this going to be something we want to graze in the spring? Is it something we want to graze in the fall? Now, I mean, the sorghum stands are are really good there. But you got, but within that realm, you got sorghum stands, you got millet, you've got just the straight sedan grass. So a lot of variation there in the warm season. Within that, if you're still going to stick within the warm season, you're, you're, cow peas a lot lot of different things that serve well as as forage and so kind of the one thing that you can be cautious of like if you're grazing milk cows and you've got a bunch of radishes or something in the brassica family um, they graze very very well Um, but it can put a off taste or a different taste to the milk you want to keep that as a pretty small part of that Of that crop, um, but it definitely is a tool that can still be be in there and be part of it. but pretty much everything that we 're using as as a cover crop is already already has a purpose somewhere, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we're just kind of reassigning that crop and that purpose to what we need it to do, and that's kind of more of what you need to identify It's not a matter of identifying the cover crop it's a matter of identifying what do you want to accomplish. When do you want to accomplish it, and then finding the right thing to do that with, and that's going to vary immensely based on where you are in the country, what soil you have, and what crop do you want to grow after it. Um, right. When do you want to graze? Like if you want to be grazing in the fall, around time when it might be be frost in the ground or fr- free- freezing air coming, you don't want sorghum man anywhere close to those cattle because it gets toxic and it'll kill them. So something. So there are definitely are things to to be aware of.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it sounds uh, pretty complicated.
2: Yeah, it, it, it can be. And that's why I think it's, it's good to find somebody locally in your area that, or a group, somebody that you can have a resource close by to help you work through some of this thing and answer some of those questions. Because it, there's stuff you need to know to make it perform to its potential. It takes knowledge.
0: We'll get back to the conversation with Brendan Blanc in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for supporting today's episode. With the tradition of providing farmer solutions since 1930, Yetter Manufacturing Company is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at Yetterco.com. That's Y E T T E R C O.com. Now let's get back to Brendan Blanc as he talks about what farmers are missing out on if they're just growing corn silage and alfalfa for forage. You said
1: most people are using the silage and alfalfa, but what are they missing if, if they're not thinking outside of that box?
2: Sure. One thing is, is
1: they're,
2: they're missing a lot of growing degree units that we have access to and sunlight. Like corn, for example, corn starts growing your GDUs at 50 degrees Fahrenheit, and alfalfa starts at 41 degrees. Your grass, again, the grass that's going to probably include your cereal grains like your cereal rye and winter triticale, um, your orchard grass, tall fescue, meadow fescue, ryegrass, that type of thing. That starts at 32 degrees. So corn, especially here in Wisconsin, corn is a warm season crop. Right. And we've got a lot of cool season on both ends of the corn growing season. You can plant corn in April, but it doesn't do much until the first of June.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So corn grows well from june to september and beyond that there's a lot of growing season from september till thanksgiving and from first of march till the middle of may that these cool season grasses can take advantage of so i think there's a huge opportunity for planning your rotation and allowing yourself to utilize those three four months worth of growing season That we have. Mm -hmm. I mean, so you can. I like to say you you can have your corn in the ground in April and it'll survive until the middle of May. Or we can have a winter triticale that was planted last fall in the ground that is thriving from March until the middle of May. So instead of having a crop in the ground that's just surviving, I would rather have one in the ground that is thriving. So that's something that I think there's there's a lot of opportunity there, and that's a crop that can be the winter triticale, especially tremendous tremendous forage crop it behaves very similarly to winter rye but there's just a lot of a lot of breeding behind it focused on forage
3: mm-hmm.
2: whereas most of your cereal rye doesn't have that forage focused breeding behind it but again it's a crop that there's a lot of tonnage there you, if you put it up young it can be tremendous high quality milk cow feed if it gets a little bit older your digestibility goes down your quality goes down but your tonnage goes way up and it's, it's really good heifer feed. Again, it's kind of what is your what you want to feed it to dictates how you manage it and when you harvest it
1: okay, and of course, here in Wisconsin and a lot of the northern states, we focus a lot on cereal rye for cover crops specifically, mm-hmm. but you're saying that there are a lot of alternatives to that if if they're looking for forage in particular
3: yeah
2: and and but to make it work well as forage, we have to treat it like. I'll, I'll kind of talk more about triticale because uh, there's just more potential there for forage.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and triticale is a cross between wheat and rye, so there's a lot of similarities there. But rye, it gets treated as a cover crop, and it's, okay, well, when we get the crop harvested, we're going to get the rye planted, and not a, there's not much emphasis on it. If you want to make it as now we'll, let's talk winter triticale, if you want it to be the best forage that it can be as far as tonnage, Instead of treating it as a cover crop, treat it as a, your winter forage crop, mm-hmm. and you want to get it planted by the middle of September. Okay. Now to do that, you got to be intentional about your your harvesting. You need to have a crop that's going to get harvested in time to give you the opportunity to get that in the ground on time. There's about a thirty percent yield loss between a September fifteenth planting and an October first, October fifth planting. So I would say our planting window. To get the most out of that crop is smaller than and, and more urgent than even our corn planting window in the spring and people get really wound up pretty tight about getting their corn planted on time <laughs> True, um, and we need to have some of that same urgency if we're going to do a winter forage crop to make it perform to its potential and a lot of people don't know what that crop's potential is because it doesn't get the attention that it deserves.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, and is there a? I'm guessing that like winter triticale is more expensive of a seed than cereal rye.
2: It is. Yep.
1: Uh, okay. Um,
2: it is, but it 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 gives you more yield. You're not going to have the lodging issues that rye gives you. It gives you a much bigger harvest window. You, rye goes to reproductive and produces seed so fast. And if you have a day or two of rain, you can be you can completely miss it.
1: Oh, okay.
2: Um, it's gone from milk health feed to ever feed really quick. Um, <sighs> whereas triticale gives you gives you a bigger window.
1: All right. So let's talk about diversity. You, you like to stress diversity, not just in your cropping rotations, but uh, also diversity in terms of feed. Can you just explain what you mean by that and why it's important?
2: Sure. What we've learned in the soil health realm in the last 10 years is is phenomenal.
3: Mm-hmm. I mean,
2: it wasn't that long ago when we, when you, if you talk about cover crops, the only thing that came to mind was tillage radish and cereal rye. And I feel like the growth in the soil health movement and knowledge in the last 10 years, just, just, I mean, really, really fast. Yeah. Um, but we've learned that the soil performs better. Our crops, our cover crops perform better with a multi-species every time they perform better there than with a monoculture. And it's kind of, the, there's this symbiosis, these crops that are working together. They're stimulating more biology in the soil, helping everything. There's a lot of stuff happening in the soil that we can't see that's difficult to measure, but that is, they're, they're all organisms benefiting, working together to accomplish a goal. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like many hands make light work. Uh-huh. And there's a lot of that going on there. And yeah. the time I spent doing dairy nutrition, the rumen performs, I mean it, it's the rumen in a cow is it's a purely biological vessel and it is there to host biology that breaks down the fiber in the plant to make it more digestible mm-hmm. i mean what what rumen can digest is pretty tremendous compared to a lot of other animals the way they can pull fiber apart and get energy out of fiber um is is incredible and that the And most of that comes down to the biological functions within the rumen. Now, we know that our soil works better with a more balanced biology there. And we get that through keeping living roots in the ground and and diversity. Well, I think the same parallels apply to the rumen. And the more forages we have in that rumen, so if we have alfalfa, grass, clover, corn silage, some winter triticale or Or some sorghum sedan. We've got a lot more things in there to help stimulate and maintain biology in a consistent environment. It's very easy for the pH in a cow's rooming to go up and down very dramatically if we're feeding a lot of corn and a lot of purchased inputs. So if you're a dairy nutritionist, you're balancing rations. So you're you're basically trying to balance the amount of protein, the amount of sugar or energy, the amount of fiber that's in there so you're balancing protein energy fiber and the fiber is basically a way to manage time how long is the feed going to stay here forages can accomplish you, you can you can you can accomplish that balance in a lot of different ways you can there's a lot of different concentrates that you could put in there's corn soybean meal a lot of different byproducts cotton feed different fiber products and i feel like the, if, the more forages you have the less of those other purchased tools you need to put in there to help balance things because the forages are able to balance a lot of that stuff on their own.
1: I know that there are some growers who are trying to grow their own TMR or you know, total mixed ration. And I understand you have some ideas about different ways growers could approach that.
2: Yeah, kind of went over some of that. I mean, having the grasses mixed in with your alfalfa and some clovers mixed in there, that, that's a really good way to do it. Corn is the challenge in that realm. Corn likes to grow with, with corn. A lot of other crops seem to like to grow with other things. Corn seems to be a little different. I applaud the guys that are, that are I mean, I, I've, I've done it. I've grown some sorghum with corn and different things. And it, it does work. But on, on large scale, that can be a challenge. But I, a way I kind of like to look at it is I want different forages going into the cow. But sometimes it's easier to mix that at the farm than it is to mix it in the field and grow it together.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So some crops do, do that very well. Like sorghum spans, we've found that they can work well with a variety of different things. And the grasses and the alfalfa work real well together. The triticale, um, doing some work there with some, again, it depends a little bit on your environment, but with some vetch and some different legumes to try and get in there. Um, one of the things that I really kind of like to focus on is kind of relating to that as a way to get diversity is better land use, utilizing your land to its, greatest potential. Was it a presentation a while ago that said 60% of the land in Wisconsin is profitable of crop land, farmland, 20% breaks even and 20% loses money. And this is on, on row crops where this kind of evaluation was done. And as I present that to different farmers, pretty much everybody I've presented it to and even different crop consultants agrees that those numbers are probably are, are pretty close to pretty, pretty close accurate. I think there's a lot of opportunities to grow different crops in some of these, some of these soils. There's a lot of low ground in my area here that low ground does not grow alfalfa very well. Mm-hmm. So people grow corn on these acres and they grow corn there every year. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you got to have a triple stack corn to overcome the bug issues that you're basically making yourself available to. And so you've got your highest input crop because you need extra fertility, because you're not getting any legume credit ever for that crop. You need the extra money invested in insect traits. It's not the highest productive soil because it's too low. Now you've got your very highest inputs going into your field that's likely to give you the lowest return. There's multiple ways to be profitable on on a piece of land. One is by having a big return. The other is by having a minimal input. One thing we've been doing a lot of these acres, we're seeding them down to a grass clover mix. They're low ground where grass grows well. And now we've got them seeded down. they there for this field is seeded for, it could be indefinitely if you want it to be.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: so our input darn near disappear over mm-hmm. time. And so then our, our profitability on that acre goes up substantially because our, our inputs are so low. And again, it allows us to maximize the use of this land and bring a different crop back to the farm and then you've got options to that i can go to milk cows you can go to heifers you can make dry hay on it you can make wet hay you can a lot of different options there but it's, it's a way to basically yeah maximize the use of that of the land that you have and bring diversity back to your farm and it requires different storage and that that's one of the biggest challenges is how are we going to store these separate feeds sometimes we can just layer them in a bunker over the top of everything else and that works just fine but sometimes not so that's that, again it's yeah. part of the planning that needs to to take place to make a system work
1: okay interesting we've also talked about evaluating crops based on their ability to give growers flexibility in spreading manure can you elaborate on that yeah I
2: mean one of the yeah I mean manure is a we kind of would talk about problem solving that manure is a is a problem it's a challenge that every dairy has to deal with. As dairies get bigger, one of the ways we're solving that problem is with, is with manure pits.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And you basically put in a manure pit you can store your manure all winter and you can store your manure all summer. And, uh, and depending on what part of the country you're in, maybe you don't have to store in the winter. But being able to spread manure on a growing crop or during the growing season can be very, very valuable. I mean, one, maybe you don't have to put up is big a manure pit. If you have a cropping plan that allows you to spread manure during the growing season. I mean, so think of the savings that you can accomplish there. But to do that, you got to have a, a cropping system that has land available during the summer. Um, so that could mean you, you've got your winter triticale, winter rye crop that you're harvesting. I mean, here you're harvesting at the, the middle, middle third week in May. And so that's a nice time to, you got that crop off, you got some bare ground there, that's a really nice time to spread manure. Mm-hmm. That Ordinarily, you wouldn't have ground available to, because by then, hopefully, you got your corn planted. Now, you've got that. You can spread manure. Let's say you come in with a sorghum stand that you're going to plant the first of June or even the, the middle of June. Mm-hmm. Um, you give yourself a couple weeks there to be spreading manure. Nice time to spread manure. The ground is typically pretty solid. You don't, you've got less compaction issues. If you've got a custom guy to come in and do stuff, they're probably a little bit less busy than they are in spring when everybody's trying to get all their pits empty at the same time. Um so that's an option. The other one is I mean putting planting some oats or forage barley in the spring. Again, that's a crop that's gonna come off a couple weeks later than the triticale or rye. So again that gives you another little bit later window. And then the sorghum sands, um you can put manure on those in between cuttings. So with those I mean we're looking at you plant it, you're looking at harvesting that about forty five days after planting. Um, you got an opportunity there to spread some manure, um, 30 days again, you'll be harvesting that crop. So another opportunity there, I mean, some other options would be, you're going to take first and second cutting off of a hay field. After that second cutting is off, you're going to, you're going to cover that field with manure. And now you've got an opportunity to plant, let's say oats or again, the barley, something like that in August that you'll harvest, that you'll harvest in later fall. One option that we've been doing a lot of that works works really well is I, like I, I talked earlier about the importance of getting the triticale planted early. A lot of times that gets pushed off because people need to get manure on that land.
3: Okay. And
2: okay, now I'm I want to get uh, my corn salvage is off. I'm waiting for the custom guy to pump my pit. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Okay, we got that done. Now that ground is wet from all the manure we put out there we got to get that dry enough to work down there's been a lot of success where you you chop the corn silage off i always tell people if you can have the grain drill out there chasing the chopper around the field we'll do that Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and then inject manure into that triticale or rye that fall now you're putting that manure you're injecting it into a growing crop that really really likes nitrogen there's studies saying Around sixty dollars an acre worth of nitrogen from manure can be saved by injecting it into a growing crop, mm-hmm. because none of it goes up, none of it goes down, because you got a crop there preventing it from going down. By injecting it, you're preventing it from going up, and so that's a an opportunity too for for manure. And again, a crop rotation that basically enhances the efficiency with which you're utilizing in your manure. It does require more man- more management, more planning.
1: Right. Right. But oh.
2: that's kind of part of this whole thing—is the planning process.
1: Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Um, so you've been, you know, really talking sort of a lot about solving problems with plants. I I just love this concept. Any other examples that you'd like to share of how you approach this?
2: Every farm is unique, and that's one of the things I love about what I do. I think the stuff that we're missing out on, the GDU's that we're missing out. On, I I look at a lot of a lot of farms. I mean, there's a lot of professionals evaluating efficiency on mm-hmm. farms. I mean, okay. you can bring in professionals to tell you how many employees should you have per milk cow. what mm-hmm. debt should you have, your banker per milk cow, per this, per hours, per employee. I mean, there's a lot of that that gets done evaluating farms. Mm-hmm. And I think when I look at what the especially the GDUs, I mean, GDUs and sunlight are free
3: mm-hmm. to the farmer. Right. And
2: the more of those that we can capture, I mean, and ph- photosynthesis is such a cool thing. <laughs> I mean, it yeah. takes sunlight and turns it into organic matter. The more that we can take advantage of that is, is a huge, huge resource. And getting the, the warm season and the cool season and maximizing our crops around that and using our soil to its greatest potential. I mean, yeah, I mean, if 20% of our soil is losing us money, there are ways. It requires a little bit more work. We will give up a little bit of time as far as how easy it is to harvest something, but a higher level of management will make you more money than speed. And I mean, and and ease. And so often we're trying to get, all right, we want to make this field bigger so we we can get across it faster and it's easier. Mm -hmm. Well, just because it's easier doesn't, and you can get across it faster doesn't necessarily mean it's more profitable. And uh, I think looking at some of that, I mean, and and this for systems like this to work well, it does require a higher level of, of management and a higher level of planning because to get your winter triticale planted on time, well, you've got, you got to make sure you've got a corn silage maturity that's going to get that field harvested on time. And so before you ever plant your corn in the spring, I want you to know which fields you're going to plant a triticale or rye that fall. So you know you can get those fields harvested on time. So have that plan a planting season ahead of time. So you're not all of a sudden, we'll see which fields come off first this fall. We'll we'll plant this spring, but be be, be very intentional. So the first corn that you plant may be the shorter maturity corn that you plant, which is backwards from what most of us think. And maybe it means shortening the maturity of your your crops to allow that to happen. So yeah, so those are some thought processes that are kind of required to make it all work the way we want it to.
1: Yeah, well, I like that because it's really, uh, instead of looking to equipment or technology specifically to solve your problems, you're really looking at improving your operation through applying your own human capital, which is <laughs> probably the best thing that people can do.
2: Well, and you know, mean, you, you hit a topic there that when you look across, where is the investment in the ag industry, whether it's equipment or whatever, most of it is geared towards speed, getting across more acres faster. And whether that's through a GPS or high-speed planners, or, you know, there's a lot of good, I mean, variable rates is, is a good thing for that fertilizer. And it's geared towards getting across more acres faster, not necessarily doing a better job on the acres that you have, or totally changing the way you're using some of the acres that you have.
3: Yeah. And
2: maybe cutting some fields apart. And, you know, here's an example I saw a while ago or a guy, I mean, like I was talking about the 20, 20 60 on acres, um, 40 acre field has got woods on three sides of it,
3: mm-hmm.
2: a little peninsula finger out in the back. And they took seven acres out of that field that according to yield data over several years had been losing money on those. They put enough of a buffer around that field because they were losing money along the trees and this little peninsula in the back was low piece. Just by taking those acres out of production, what was left of that field full 33 acres that were left was more profitable. Well, those extra seven acres, they put a wide enough strip they could get back to the, their, their 30 foot triple more and they could get back there and mow it off they took two cuttings of hay off that off that for a year just made dry hay out of it for feeding calves or whatever i mean look how much more profitable that field is i mean it, it was more profitable before they took a crop off of it
3: uh-huh. and now
2: if we can take a crop off of it yeah it was more profitable because they were just doing nothing because they weren't losing money on those well now we can actually harvest a crop on it so uh-huh. it's the uh, i think there's yeah a lot of opportunities there that for farms to be more profitable with the land that they have.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love it. Well, this has been really great.
2: Well, well thank you <laughs> this is for the opportunity to to talk with you. I think the, getting people together on these topics, it's 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 so important and just the, mm-hmm. the way the, the growth of the soil health movement
3: mm-hmm.
2: from the farmer level and like, I mean, from your magazine, it's just so cool to see and just in, in agriculture change, tends to happen very slowly <laughs>
1: uh-huh. and
2: i'm just amazed at the speed of change that i'm seeing in agriculture right now yeah. along the soil health topic
1: yeah and, it's uh, it's exciting isn't it
2: it it, re- it really is i i think that i think agriculture is going through a more dramatic change of this right now than i don't know when you would go back to find them anything more dramatic change in ag as, as to what we're seeing right now in the soil health
0: movement yeah Thanks to Certified Forage Specialist, Brendan Blanc, for this conversation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Yetter Manufacturing, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lestermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider Daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm managing editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.